Welcome to Tangents from Coin Center. I'm Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center. And with me, as always, I've got Peter Van Valkenburg, Director of Research at Coin Center. Hi, Peter. Hey, How are you doing? I'm researching. What are you researching? No, I'm not. <laughs> I was researching. <laughs> I guess I'm done researching. You're done researching for, for now, I'm sure. Uh, there'll be another thing. Um, but the thing you were researching, which we're here to talk about today, uh, is a comment letter that we filed with the SEC in a proceeding um, that they have open until, I guess, yesterday um, that had nothing to do with cryptocurrency or decentralized exchange or DeFi or anything like that. Is that right? Nothing to do. Um well, it's never mentioned. None of those terms, not even digital assets. There's another rulemaking pending right now um, on the definition of dealers, mm -hmm. which does mention digital assets in a footnote of right. a 200-page uh, rule. And in this, this other, in this rulemaking we're talking about today, the Exchange Act rulemaking, um, not a single mention. But I mean, you know, we always advocate for technology-neutral. Uh, rules and laws. And so just because the technology is not mentioned doesn't mean it, it wouldn't be potentially uh, subject to a, a rule change. And it's, you know, uh, we'll get into it in detail. The, the substance of the rule is we're going to change the definition of what it is to be an exchange. Um, they're not changing the statute, of course, but the statute gives the SEC discretion to um, clarify the, the definition. And the uh, rule change basically says, look, um, it used to be that you were exchange because you, um, in the old rule, uh, brought together orders, uh, which makes sense, like someone managing an order book. Uh, but now it's going to be about people who bring together people, people who bring together people. Um, people and, helping people, helping the human fund. Yeah. <laughs> And the other half of the definition, because it's a two-part sort of test, is how are you bringing these things together? Um, it used to be uh, by using established methods, using methods. And now it is by making available uh, methods, rules, or communications protocols. So um, we are right now speaking uh, through... Uh, Google Meet. Uh, I don't know if it's bad OPSEC to reveal how we record our podcast. I, I think it's clear from the formatting. <laughs> I mean, is Google, if you and I were to agree to a, uh, a securities deal right now, is Google making available a communications protocol um, that brings together buyers and sellers? Well, sure. maybe. A yes, they are doing that, but they're not making available methods. <laughs> So let's take a before before we do that. Right. Okay. Um, why is the SEC doing this? Right. They don't mention. So one reason they might be doing it is to uh, make sure that. So so Gary Gensler has been on the record most recently in a speech dedicated to crypto market regulation a couple of weeks ago. He's been clear that he thinks that. Um, Cryptocurrency exchanges like Coinbase, Kraken, and the like um, should register as securities exchanges. Okay, because as far as he's concerned, they are probably uh, probably trading securities, and so they should register as 
securities exchanges under the act. Um, but what about decentralized uh, exchange? So one reason to do this rule might be to expand, you know, decentralized exchange probably couldn't be captured by the existing interpretation of what the word exchange in the act means. So although yeah. there's the ether delta uh, settlement. Let's hold on, let, 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 I'm just, let me set the table. Yes. So arguably you couldn't capture decentralized exchange uh, properly understood um, under the existing interpretation of what exchange means. Um, so you have to reinterpret it. And this, you, would, you could argue, would do that. But they don't mention decentralized exchange once and, in, the, and, in the hundreds of pages of the rulemaking. To the contrary, um, arguing that maybe they had no intent to do this with respect to decentralized exchange, yeah. uh, they, you know, the SEC has to do fairly rigorous economic analysis, actually beyond the typical economic impact analysis required by OIRA or other, you know, um, generally applying yeah, administrators. So much to say about all this. Keep, keep going. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, anyway, they've got some specific things they have to do, and one of those things is estimate the impact of the rule change. And to do that, they had to basically come up with a number for the number of things that they're defining as communications protocols that are likely to exist in the world and whether the, some subset of those are not yet registered as exchanges and would therefore need to register. And it's not even the subset of how many are not registered. It's just the total number of communications protocol systems that they estimate in the world that, that connect buyers and sellers of securities using these communications protocols is 22, according to the rulemaking. So, you know, it, it, you can yeah so, so i was going to say one one reason that that they maybe did this was to capture DeFi or decentralized exchange another reason is to do what they say uh in the rulemaking and in certain statements from different commissioners was their intent which is that they want to capture uh facilities that are trading uh fixed income and government securities that today don't fall into this right so things like and this is this is these are my words, right? Things like the Bloomberg terminal, yeah, right? Where there's a chat box and it has a, a structured the, the 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 program that the Bloomberg terminal offers you has a structured way to um, to compose a message where you can list the security type, list the bid or ask price, and put in a message, and it just goes out to other traders who yeah. can. So, so you're not committing to anything. They're not right. take. They're, it's not an order. The term is non-firm trading interest. Yeah, th that's a name that Dave invented. Uh, for this, that was yeah, as far yeah, as yeah. I know, that's not a term that existed before this rule. No, I mean it's a reasonable. It's, it's a, a reasonable, reasonable term. Yeah, reasonable term because you know, to a certain extent, the the old definition was fairly clear that it was about bringing together orders, right? But, but let me just stop you. Yeah, one of my pet peeves with just the way federal agencies regulate is that they invent new language and they put capital letters on it, things like non-firm order or communications protocol system. And then they begin to talk about them as, as these things are legal terms. I like right? to capitalize random things too. So I guess <laughs> Barry knows from having to edit my comments before they get published. Yes, that's true. <laughs> uh, no, but you're right. And you know, th this is actually fascinating in the sense that, and we've had other conversations in the past about, you know, whose who's constitutional duty is it to make law? It's the Congress, it's not the executive branch. Now, of course, the executive branch is allowed to interpret uh, a lot of things in legislation and fill in the details left by legislators, but Congress can't tell the agencies to just make it up as they go along. And making up whole categories of things 
that are subsets of maybe something defined in the statute is, a, is sort of a weird practice. It happens in the anti-money laundering context all the time. The Bank Secrecy Act has a list of financial institutions, but also allows the Treasury to add to that list. And so basically the Treasury just creates whole new categories. Like you'd be surprised if you were an anti-money laundering lawyer who hadn't looked at the Bank Secrecy Act itself in a while, maybe that money services business is not a term in the Bank Secrecy Act. It's a term in the rules which have a whole separate list of definitions for persons who might be financial. It, yeah, this happens it, all the time. It and does. Like, and at least the BSA gives the Treasury uh, Secretary uh, authority, whether it's constitutional or not, a separate uh, matter, but at least gives the, the Secretary authority to develop these new definitions, right? I don't want to overclaim there about the Securities Act, though, because to be clear, our comment doesn't get into any statute no, 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 yeah. uh, authority arguments because. We're just talking. As we'll get to it, we went straight to the constitutional law arguments because yeah. that's where we thought we had value add. The securities laws are incredibly broad. The statutory definition of exchange is broader than any yeah. of these rule definitions, yeah. which is very interesting. And we can get to severability if this was to be challenged on First Amendment grounds and found unconstitutional. I'm not sure if the Exchange Act survives, which is, <laughs> you know, although... You know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay, but let's let's okay. So and so they could be motivated by what they said they were motivated by, which is they want to capture things like these chat features on you know whatever. This is such a not Jerry Brito conversation. Like, Why? Because I'm because I'm like every time like I'm like oh well, they're doing this. You're like don't psychoanalyze other people. <laughs> oh no, like, no 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 because I'm because I'm not so I'm not psychoanalyze. I'm not no I hate to say I hate to think. Um, how do I put this? I hate to I hate to say what other people are thinking because I can't know, and, I, and I'm, I very strongly abide by that rule. What I'm doing here, though, is saying all the possible reasons. Yes, I'm just laying them all out without saying that any one of them um, is is the right one. And it's true, we don't know. Like there's, a, there's know. like like there's a large fraction of the tweets about the SEC stuff that I've seen. A lot of them do seem to infer bad faith because right. I think Chairman Gensler for some good reasons, some bad reasons, has become this sort of like visible figure in the space that yeah. is often vilified. I, I actually have no idea in this case the degree to which there were any conversations about this effect in crypto. I, yeah. I, I don't know, you know? I, I have no idea. And, and But see, but here's the, but this is where, like I want to kind of depart from my own rule. So just to say, so normally take them at their word. They want to capture something like the Bloomberg terminal. And so they came up with this rule not realizing that they wrote it so broadly that it's going to capture all of decentralized exchange, right? And all kinds of DeFi applications. And who knows what else in the world that is outside of crypto that we're not looking at, right? Um, another you know, thing is that they wrote it this way with the intention of capturing a terminal, but then realized that it would also work for DeFi, <laughs> right? Um, and the reason that, that uh, some people, I think, um, wonder about bad faith is that you know there's there's kind of like a there's there's a lot of smoke, right? It's not mentioned once. Um, uh, you know, Chairman Gensler is out there making statements saying that you know these exchanges, whether they're centralized or decentralized or securities exchanges, you know, um, and. They, this staff and this commission is so smart. They really are very smart and they're very well um, steeped in cryptocurrency that, you know, it's just very surprising that they would not realize. I mean, for one, Commissioner Purse, 
understood it, yeah. it seems. Well, she certainly raised a, a, a flag yeah. in her descent to the rulemaking, saying she had some other thoughts. Yeah. And then towards the end of that descent, she says, and, you know, First Amendment folks who are concerned about, you know, potential regulatory overreach, impeding free speech, should think about what it means to start permissioning the publication of communications protocols. I don't think she even mentioned the First Amendment. Maybe No. She, she said, uh, I'm pretty sure that what she said was just to, to, just to people who run any kind of communication system, don't think this doesn't affect you. And I think that's that's as far as she went to, to say. I don't think she mentioned it. could be wrong. I, I swear she mentioned okay, free speech, but maybe not. Maybe. In any event, so that's the reason for for why we're here. <clears throat> so they're they're reinterpreting the definition of exchange in the act. Yeah. And what and, effect yeah. Yeah. And so th this is this is the the reason why, you know, it's interesting to try and unpack past motivations or you know assumptions that might have been made by staff about what this applies to yeah. but at the end of the day it's the law or the rule on the page that matters yeah. right and so the fact of the matter is as i as i sort of briefly recounted earlier we're changing our definition for who has to register which is a prior restraint it's a and the supreme court has roundly rejected prior restraint as walter would say um They've redefined who has to get permission um, and register with the SEC as an exchange um, from people who are bringing together objects or things, which is obviously like an, an action, a conduct that happens in the world, to people who are bringing together people. We go into depth in, the, in our interpretation section of the comment about how bringing together people really is persuasion because you, you rarely bring together people physically like you would bring together orders on a database or a spreadsheet. Um, if you're bringing together people physically, they're either incapacitated or convicts, like you're a jailer and you're bringing them together. Like, bringing together means persuasion, so it really is speech. And then the other half of the definition is very evidently a switch from conduct regulation to speech regulation, because it's this move from using methods, which assumes, it seems, inherently that you're acting on behalf of someone specifically, uh, who's expressed intent to you to do something, and now you're using methods to do that thing. And instead, just making available methods or communications protocols, um, which it's very uh, sort of difficult language, um, deliberately or not, uh, it's weird language, but there's no interpretation of making available communications protocol. The definition of protocol is a set of rules. There's no interpretation that doesn't absolutely include publishing rules, publishing you know a list of things that people are supposed to be able to do or not be able to do, which is really just publishing speech. I mean, you could do this in a book. In fact, um, because there's nothing in here about DeFi or crypto or even the internet per se, like this extends to someone, you know, publishing a book on Amazon, potentially. And so, because the, the the rule is what matters and not the intent of the people who wrote the rule, right. um, it will be interpreted in the future, undoubtedly, to include these things. Because you would have to make a, a, an obscene uh, parody of the English language to say that it doesn't potentially include these things. And so it, it gives, if not this commission, a future commission, plenty of leeway to go after all kinds of things that are basically just publishing speech. 
like people who don't understand um, statutory interpretation and the, the 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 way that courts do this um, might find this kind of weird. But this is kind of this is how we want to run society. We want right. there to be clearly stated rules, and then a, a normal person should be able to read the rules. You shouldn't need to know some special fact about Gary Gensler or some special fact about Hester Peirce to look at the rule and know what it does. You should just be able to look at the rule. There's this great case. Um, about statutory interpretation, where the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which was ostensibly about clamping down on accounting fraud and financial fraud, was used to create criminal liability for a guy who threw fish off of his boat. So he was catching some fish. They were too small. So that's illegal. You got to throw them back. And his boat was boarded by the, um, the I think, Florida uh, Fish and Wildlife or something. And they said, don't throw that fish off the off the boat. They're too small. Go into port so we can take that as evidence, and then we will charge you. And of course, the guy was like, I'm just going to throw the fish overboard. But the Gramm-Leach-Bliley law says um, any destruction uh, or concealment of a record or objects is included within this record um, is a violation of Gramm-Leach-Bliley. And so it was very strange. Um, is this accounting statute supposed to apply to fish destruction? The court said, actually, the majority said, yeah, yeah kind of. So, you know, Not this is why statutory interpretation matters and, you know, broad statutes that seem to have a lot of possible application are a threat, even if it wasn't the intent of the person who wrote that statute or wrote that rule for that to be the target, the targeted activity of regulation. Right. And so the way it's, it's written, the way it's proposed, you say could potentially cover a book. And so I want to press you on that um, because I think it would it, that publishing a book with um, uh, methods by which one could uh, engage in securities uh, certainly would be speech. Um, but publishing a book does not bring together people necessarily, does it? Or how would that work? Well, again, bringing together orders seems to infer some sort of professional conduct where you're taking it upon yourself to represent the interests of the people involved, right? Bringing together people, bringing together buyers and sellers. I mean, if, if I stand on a street corner to take an even simpler example than publishing a book and yeah. say, anybody who wants to trade Apple stock, meet at the park at 9 p.m., I'm bringing people together yeah. by giving them a common rule set. And, you know, you might think, all right, Peter, you're being too alarmist here. You're suggesting that, um, you know, there's, there should be some bringing together, which is more than just persuasion, uh, even if. No, no, no. I mean, because um, it's not just that, that there's, how do I put this? Like, um, like, I can imagine that what the SEC is going to say in response to, to the comment that you wrote and others is that it's not mere speech because the people that they have in mind and and that is clearly um, denoted by bringing together people, you have to provide some kind of facility, right? If you look at the Exchange Act, you would think it'd be some kind of marketplace, right? In our modern world, we don't have places anymore the way that we you know, uh, thought about it before, you know, the internet. Um, and so, but never, nonetheless, you are providing some kind of facility 
the, in which you host people or, or, or somehow, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I see what you're saying, but they can say that, but they said in the rulemaking itself <laughs> that persons who merely make available, whereas someone else then brings together are subject to the definition of communications protocol system. All right, okay, go, go into that. What do you mean? Go, go into that, explain that. Uh, so, I mean, we can just quote the specific language in the... So this is why there was this shift from makes available, or from um, um, using methods to makes available, right? Because, again, using methods actually starts to sound much more like the people are in my facility, that I've created for them, and I'm using methods on their behalf. Um, but make available is just, you know, so I'm gonna get, put this out in the world and other people can use it to do what they wanna do with it. And they're well, very you, you, you can imagine putting together, <clears throat> going to, um, you can imagine going to Central Park with a big whiteboard and putting, you know, some kind of just drawing, like some kind of column where you say, if you, if you buy, write your name here, if you're selling, write your name here, and maybe here are different prices. I, don't I think know. we should do this too. We should right. get Joe, Joe Wiesenthal to do this. To I do this, yeah. Game. So <laughs> you do that, and then you publish, you know, a classified ad in a New York Times. Not that I think they have classifieds anymore. But you publish a, a classified that says, meet in Central Park at this time if you want to trade Tesla stock. And you show up and you, at that point, a point in time and place, you've brought together people, and you put up the whiteboard, and you walk away. And people yeah. then, you know, use the markers to write their names. They find each other, at given the, you know, the the, the method that you have provided with the whiteboard, and you the, exchange. Sort of the catch here is you have to imagine a world where bearer shares are still common, right? Which is, and there's nothing actually illegal about bearer shares per se. I've looked really hard to try and find if bearer shares are illegal. There's some confiscatory tax treatment if you're a corporation that issues stock as in the form of bear shares and some other stuff. But so far as I know, it'd be totally okay for you and me to meet in a park, Jerry, and trade, you know, bearer bonds. Um, it's kind of a diehard plot, but you know, it, it, it <laughs> happened. Anyway, but, so, but just, but just the point is, I, I can also imagine folks at the SEC just scoffing at what we just laid out with the, with the whiteboard. Um, and saying you're you're being silly, right? You're so, not taking this seriously. But now, now it's probably worth just quoting the actual rule. Right. So, on page fifteen thousand five hundred and six of the Federal Register, where it was um, um, printed, uh, in footnote one hundred and seven, they say the term "makes available" is also intended to make clear that in the event that a party other than the organization, association, or group of persons performs a function of the exchange, the function performed by that party would still be captured for the purposes of determining the scope of the exchange under Exchange Act Rule 3B16. The commission stated that it will attribute the activities of a trading facility to a system if that facility is offered by the system directly or indirectly, such as where a system arranges for a system for a third party or parties to offer the trading facility. The commission has further recognized how a system may consist of various functionalities, mechanisms, or protocols that operate collectively to bring together the orders for securities of multiple buyers and sellers using non-discretionary methods under the criteria of rule 3B16, et cetera, et cetera. I probably don't need to quote this whole thing, but they they say in multiple places here, not just in this one footnote, in other places, this footnote's the most explicit about it, that look, we're really gonna classify anyone who's doing a part of this activity 
as yeah. a part of the exchange and presumably to be sort of jointly and severally liable for something like a Section 5 violation where you failed to register as, 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 as an exchange, which has criminal and civil penalties. And so if, if any part includes making available a protocol, then yes, even publishing a book on Amazon is potentially potentially subject to the rule. Certainly making you know true communications protocols available, whether they're um, the simple mail transfer protocol or the zero X or Uniswap protocol or the Bitcoin protocol, potentially, we could we could imagine there's trading, you know, securities using rootstock or just using plain old colored coins like this Satoshi represents shares of my company. Yeah, and then, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but BISC is a decentralized exchange on Bitcoin. Oh, oh yeah. It's like a um, lobster BISC? Uh, B-I-S-Q. Yeah, like this. You want to look it up. Um, so, okay. And so, as you mentioned at the top, um, there are any number of things you can say about this rule. So, there's so they offered a comment period for the public to weigh in. And so, we're weighing in. And there are any number of things you could say about it. And many folks um, have. And there's some great comments that have been uh, filed. Um, and among other things, you could say things like, you don't have really the authority to interpret it this broadly. You could say it's hard um, because the Exchange Act is is pretty broad in the drafting. Uh, uh, but you could say that. Um, yeah. You could say um, you didn't do a proper economic analysis. Which, by the way, um, uh, 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 Executive Order uh, oh god twelve. I'm gonna, I'm embarrassing myself and I remember the, the Executive Order, but the, but the. Um, the executive order that requires um, one to do economic analysis uh, and to have it be, be reviewed by OIRA does not apply to independent agencies, or at least that's the way presidents uh, have interpreted it. Okay. However, Securities and Exchange Commission is unique among independent agencies as having, in its organic statute, a requirement that it do an economic analysis and assessment of burdens. Uh, so they are under a, a, you know, they've been singled out specifically for being the kind of regulator that has to take into consideration um, the economic impact of, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm automatically jumping to like why they've done their due diligence, like the argument as to why they've done their due diligence. I, it's interesting to me to think like, okay, so we're reading this as a, a Gorsuch or a Kavanaugh or someone yeah. who's really focused on plain statutory interpretation or rule interpretation, yeah. but read it and therefore becoming very alarmed that it's very broad. Yeah. Now, another thing the SEC could say though is, well, you know, we have prosecutorial discretion. We right. have the ability to pick which suits we bring and we know what we mean. And so the only people who will be impacted are these 22 people we intended to, you know, right. to impact. Right. Uh, can you get away with that? With, like, is there a, a canon of statutory interpretation that is required when you do your economic analysis as a, as as an agency? Do you have to interpret your uh, rules in a, a, a plain reading of the rule sense, or can you say, well, we're only going to go after this many, so the economic analysis is small? This is a question I don't know the answer to. I, so I don't know the answer to it either, but I imagine that the court would basically look at it and say, could you reasonably, like, is this reasonable, right? Could you reasonably foresee any more than 22? And if, if maybe if you know it was going to be 23 or 25 or 30, the court's going to be like, look, this is fine, right? But if if you know you've completely ignored 
like an entire other sectors of the economy that are going to be affected by this, um, the court's going to say, you know, you need to do this again. again. Yeah, and your answer couldn't possibly be, we know what we mean, and therefore we won't go after more because, of course, it's a rule that's going to sit on the books beyond yeah, the current commission. So. The economic analysis just informs the rulemaking. It's not once the rulemaking is done, the rule is the rule, right? right. And, that, and that's the, you know, uh, this is not binding in any way. Um, so yeah, so we could have made all those arguments, but we chose instead to focus exclusively on the First Amendment argument, which is kind of weird for financial regulators who, uh, you know, I was going to say are probably not used to thinking about that, but as you discovered in your research, uh, maybe they, they are more or should be more aware than. Well, yeah. And so, I mean, it was convenient to be totally honest because we were already working on a second paper about First Amendment implications of regulating open source software developers and um, members of permissionless blockchain networks like miners and stakers and things. And that's because the first paper we did, we did um, specifically under a sort of general heading of regulation of these protocols for anti-money laundering purposes. It's my decentralized exchange and electronic cash and the constitution paper. And we tried to keep it cabined because otherwise I'll just write forever to really just software development as software development. And we didn't go into things in, in any real depth, like, well, what about just relaying transaction messages on a whisper, um, a gossip network, uh, a peer-to-peer -peer network? What about validating blocks? What about publishing those blocks after, after you've validated the transactions in them and bundled them up and done the proof of work and all that? What about all these other activities, which still are ostensibly just communicating zeros and ones over the over the right. internet where are the boundaries as far as reasonable permission-based regulation of people doing those activities assuming we can't just you know gag everyone um and so because we were already going down that road specifically starting with a case that we referenced in that past paper um ims health versus sorrel which is about pharmaceutical data brokers and how they actually have um protected speech interests or speech rights in buying and selling information about what doctors are prescribing and whether they're prescribing their pharmaceuticals or not. So purely commercial speech. Purely commercial, like the most- well, The rankest- me, least sympathetic type. Like I, I don't carry water for big pharma. As you know, if you stop eating seed oils, you don't get sick anymore. So, um, <laughs> so even in a purely commercial speech context, the, the current, close to the current court, this decision was in 2000 and- 16, I think. No, 2011, actually. So the court's changed a little bit, but it's it's actually changed in the direction of even more um, stronger protection of, of a First Amendment rights. So even purely commercial speech gets pretty strong protection under, under that case. And it's sort of like, there's debate about this, whether it totally killed the commercial speech distinction, i.e., you know, writing a book gets all the protection and writing a, a an advertisement uh, gets much less protection but it definitely um it definitely kills commercial speech as a distinct area of constitutional analysis when there is content-based or viewpoint-based discrimination because the vermont law that was challenged in that case specifically said academics uh, manufacturers of generic pharmaceuticals they can still get this information and distribute it it's just pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical detailers who are the people who are the data brokers for the advertisers. It's just these people who can't get this information or publish this information. So it's not just a ban on 
certain types of content. It was a ban on certain types of people expressing certain types of content. And so, you know, it, it occurred to me when we were writing that paper, well, that's actually pretty good precedent then to sort of hang your hat on as far as, you know, the people who are um, not just writing software for open permissionless networks, but also people running those networks. Because, you know, you might say, oh, well, mining the blockchain isn't speech. You're making money off of it. Well, you know, the pharmaceutical companies make a whole lot of money off of trading data about prescriber information. And so it doesn't seem like making money off of your speech activity is the sort of death knell to your First Amendment protections under the current court. And it's especially not going to be the case if the law that tried to ban, say, miners or lightning nodes or or anyone else in these networks was was truly viewpoint discrimination like that Vermont statute was. And so we tend to think of viewpoint discrimination in the context of like um, Mormons aren't allowed to to talk anymore. Like, the, and it, obviously that would be very unconstitutional because you've got um, free exercise of religion in there as well. But we tend to think of viewpoint discrimination as about you know a political view or a religious view or a cultural view. But the court basically said no. Like, you know, even if it's a very capitalist type interest, it's yeah. a viewpoint. You can't stop that. And Frankly, and, and, and quite honestly, where does the capitalist viewpoint and the political viewpoint, you know, where does one begin and where does the other one end, right? Because <laughs> given folks' feelings about big pharma and Bitcoin mining, you know, they're just doing capitalistic activity, but, you know, people might put certain political labels on what they're doing. Yeah. And, and you know, the, 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 the enthusiasm over uh, Bitcoin is if I had to estimate like 2% electric money, you know, like, oh, cool, we can have e-commerce and like 98%, uh, wouldn't it be great if we were able to have a free, open, permissionless way to do, you know, peer-to-peer -peer transactions over the internet so we didn't have to be beholden to a corporation uh, or beholden to a government. You're like, that's a deeply political view. So, so anyway, we were already writing this paper. I think the arguments are strong. But it's great that the SEC decided to publish this rulemaking because it forced me to look more narrowly if within my already ongoing research at securities regulation. And you know, when decentralized exchange was first becoming a big thing, I, I would also sort of, you know, always under a disclaimer, this is not legal advice, I'd say like, well, watch out for the anti-money laundering rules, although they can be narrowly interpreted to cover only people who accept and transmit and therefore have some kind of actual custody over someone else's money. Be really careful about the securities laws because those definitions are super broad. And I always sort of thought like, we may not have much help there, even from the First Amendment necessarily. Um, but it turns out to get to where you were, I think, driving with whatever question you asked a while ago, I know I've been ranting. Um, it turns out there is a lot of case law. Well, there's one really big case uh, in 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 securities laws about the intersection of the First Amendment and the investor protection scheme set up by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it's not in the context of the Exchange Act. It's in the context of the Investment Advisors Act, which is, you know, another registration scheme for people who regularly engage in sort of a professional advice about, you know, managing your portfolio, what stocks to invest in, what, what assets to, to diversify into, all of these sorts of things, how to manage your money. And this person isn't holding your money, they're advising you, right? And this case is 
Low versus Securities Exchange Commission. It's a 1985 case. It is as old as me. <laughs> exactly. Um, and you know, it's a really it's a pretty straightforward fact pattern, actually. This this low guy, Christopher Lowe, was a um sort of um disreputable investment advisor. He actually got his registration revoked for insider trading or something. I may be wrong about that for specific malfeasance. Perfectly reasonable. Um, and then he continues along with some, um, uh, uh, I was going to say co-conspirators, but <laughs> he actually did nothing wrong, apparently, uh, <laughs> with some friends to publish a newsletter of, you know, hot stock tips. And there was even some... Um, so he's still giving financial advice. Still giving financial who, advice. Who paid. And not only that, there, there was some indication that um, the, the issuers of the stock were writing the articles about the stock that were he was then publishing in the oh, newsletter, like about how good the stock is. Right. And he never said anything bad about any of these stocks. So you know you can draw your own conclusions. I this is not a good guy. I'm not defending yeah, this yeah, guy. Yeah. Right. The, the point is that is that yeah. he previously was an investment advisor. He was giving advice to clients right. whom he had a direct um, uh, relationship. And he was telling them, hey, this is how you should manage your money, giving them direct advice. And as a result, he was he had, was licensed, let's say. It's not, it's not a license, it's a registration. registration. He was registered with the SEC as an, as an investment advisor. That's revoked. He then pivots, uh, as we now say. To just publishing a newsletter. And so he's giving advice about what stocks you should buy, but he's not giving it to any particular client. He's just publishing it in a newsletter that people can subscribe to. That's right. And... The SEC went after him again um, because of this publishing activity, and they they asked the court for an injunction against him to force him to stop publishing the newsletter setting. based based on the fact that he that his license had been suspended. So he yes. can't do this anymore because he can't give out investment advice. You're not allowed to continue. Yeah, right. and this is the interesting thing about the term registration. Yeah, the, which is the term of art in the securities laws. It really is a license. It's though. a license. It's, it's not like you just need to phone in and be like, "Hey, I'm doing this stuff," and then they're, they're like, "That's the end of it." It's like they can be like, uh, "No, you're not. <laughs> Stop." You know, it's a license. Um, it's. I think the distinction <clears throat> that the, the uh, charitable way to think about that, I think, is that registration you merely have to register, right. and then you can be told to stop. Whereas a license, you probably have to pass a test before you are given a license or something. That's probably right. But but, but the end result is the same. You have to have this thing yeah. that the government gives you, uh, and without which you're not allowed to do your whatever business you're. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the SEC brings an injunction against, or asks asks a court for an injunction against him. He gets some lawyers and he challenges them and says, "You can't, you can't do this. I have a right to just publish." You know, a newsletter. It's my First Amendment rights um, under the Constitution. And to make a long story short, uh, it gets all the way up to the Supreme Court in 1985, and the court unanimously says the SEC can't can't get this injunction. Um, the majority of the court uses a flexible statutory interpretation. They look deep into the legislative history of the of the Investment Advisor Act for statements from members of Congress about whether they imagined that it would apply to just publishing a newsletter. They look at the text of the Investment Advisor Act itself, which does have an exclusion 
for anyone who is publishing a bona fide periodical, um, which is <laughs> like, I don't know how that, that got through ledge council uh, in Congress, but ledge council back then might've been quite different. And so they say like, well, was Congress intending to permission people who are, you know, uh, writing newsletters, if the newsletter is like a substandard quality, like that's not bona fide, it's uh, it's a little a little less good than than Bloomberg News or uh, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and they said, no, we, that couldn't possibly be the legislative intent because that would be unconstitutional. That would be discriminatory based on the quality of the content being published rather than something else. So clearly Congress intended to carve out any kind of permissioning of any kind of regular dispassionate investment advice in a newsletter. And so, you know, the majority didn't have to do a lot of deep constitutional analysis because they used what's called the constitutional avoidance canon of statutory interpretation. They said Congress could not have possibly meant to permission um, certain types of publications that are just lousy because that would be unconstitutional in the First Amendment. So, so Congress actually meant to carve all of this activity out. So it's actually beyond the SEC's statutory authority to go right. after Lowe in this case. So, so they didn't say the act is unconstitutional. They said um, what the SEC is trying to do here would be unconstitutional. Therefore, the act can't possibly couldn't have possibly mean. Yeah, meant that. Yeah. Now, Justice White who I didn't know much about, but seems like was kind of a badass, um, wrote this great concurrence that the chief justice and one other uh, justice joined. Um, so it's a unanimous court saying that the SEC can't do this, but these three justices have a separate opinion that says, you know, we've looked at the legislative history and we've looked at the plain text of the Investment Advisors Act. And we actually think Congress meant to discriminate between various qualities of investment advice as far as published newsletters. And yeah, they didn't want the SEC to make it illegal for the Wall Street Journal to run their business, but they definitely meant to make it illegal for someone like Christopher Lowe, uh, you know, a disreputable former investment advisor to publish a newsletter. And so they didn't say, though, that this was okay for the SEC to do, to stop them from publishing. They said, actually, then, because that was Congress's intent, and that is actually the, the letter of the Investment Advisors Act, that that aspect of the Investment Advisors Act, as applied in that context, is unconstitutional. And Justice White, therefore, had to do the full constitutional analysis. And in his concurring opinion, he's got this very pristine paragraph as far as creating a clear standard, which I think is the best standard I've ever seen with respect to differentiating between something that is perfectly constitutionally allowed to be permissioned, which is professional conduct, versus um, the regulation of speech as speech. Because of course, when you regulate professional conduct, when you like say, in order to practice law, which is mostly speaking, you need to get barred. Um, of course, you're impacting speech, but the main thing you're focusing on is the professional conduct and the impact in speech is incidental to the regulation of professional conduct. So there's even like radio broadcasters are licensed. Are they? <clears throat> yeah, to operate the radio station. To operate the radio station. Yes. My, my father was a broadcaster, yeah. but he he was just the talent. He, he didn't do the, he didn't send the radio waves out. So I guess he didn't need to get a license. Um, so Justice White's standard 
that he articulates, citing a whole bunch of case law about all sorts of things, uh, including like union organizers who are giving speeches about, hey, join the union, but aren't like running the union. All He cites a whole bunch of cases, which we won't go into, um, has this good standard. And I'll just read it. One who takes the affairs of a client personally in hand and purports to exercise judgment on behalf of the client in the light of the client's individual needs and circumstances is properly viewed as engaging in the practice of a profession. Just as offer and acceptance are communications incidental to the regulable transaction called a contract, the professional speech is incidental to the conduct of the profession. If the government enacts generally applicable licensing provisions limiting the class of persons who may practice the profession, it cannot be said to have enacted a limitation on freedom of speech or the press subject to the First Amendment scrutiny. Where the personal nexus between professional and client does not exist, and a speaker does not purport to be exercising judgment on behalf of any particular individual with whose circumstances he is directly acquainted, government regulation ceases to function as a legitimate regulation of professional practice with only incidental impact on speech. It becomes regulation of speaking or publishing as such, subject to the First Amendment's command that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Like, that's such a good paragraph. I really like that. And so, as I said to Jerry earlier, uh, to you earlier, Jerry, um, you know, I was already writing this paper about, like, where does the where does the line lie between conduct, which we can regulate, and speech, which we can't regulate? And I hadn't yet found low, but because we were making arguments in front of the uh, Securities Exchange Commission for this rulemaking, I was like, oh, oh, this is a useful case. <laughs> Um, and so then after that, it's just kind of slam dunk, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and hopefully as, as far as uh, Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and the rest. Yeah, so there's a, there's a few things in there. Um, we kind of did this in reverse order by talking about statutory interpretation before yeah. we talked about the low holding. You know, it is a completely fair and good argument against everything I've just said to say that Justice White wrote a, con a, a, yeah, a concurrence. A concurrence. Yeah. It's not precedential, yeah. although the majority references Justice White's concurrence in a footnote and says, we agree that right. professional conduct regulation can't extend to just speech. All That's we're right. saying is that Congress didn't intend it to, and therefore the deficiency with the SEC's seeking an injunction here is their lack of statutory authority, not that it's unconstitutional, but they basically adopted his yeah. test for professional conduct. And again, he cites a bunch of older cases going back to like union organizing and things like that, which have a very similar feel to it. They're just not quite as well articulated and they're not directly in the context of securities law. So no matter what, we have a lot of good precedential ground to build this specific but just, um, distinction into the standard as to whether I'm just publishing software or I'm taking the affairs of a client personally in hand and making that the standard for when we can no longer permission that activity. And but, well, <laughs> oh, go ahead, say the but, because I'm, I'm going to say why I think it. it yeah. Works. But also, um, unlike the majority in Lowe, the current court is much more like Justice White. Right. They are not fans of legislative history or the constitutional avoidance canon. They are plain language statutory interpreter interpreters who will say, look, an ordinary person reading this is, is going to read this as a prohibition on publishing software. Mm -hmm. they, they just are. 
And so we have to address the rule or the statute as we find it. We can't imagine better motives because right. that's how a normal person is going to find the statute. And that's how the rule of law is supposed to work. And so I don't think, and you know, Kavanaugh especially has written exhaustively about how the constitutional avoidance canon is a big mistake. Right. Just throw it out. And so that'll mean they'll have to address the actual constitutionality of the rule itself and maybe even the Exchange Act itself, because again, the Exchange Act has an even broader or more ambiguous definition of what it is to be an exchange that needs to register. Yeah. And so what I was going to say is that the white standard just seems so eminently reasonable, <clears throat> right? Um, that I can't imagine. Uh, the court not taking notice of it, especially because whoever the plaintiff is is going to um, uh, uh, bring it to their attention. And if you apply that test, then that's my point. This is a slam dunk applied to what we have uh, in this instance. Yeah, and it might be interesting for our, our listeners who are in this space, um, you know, working on software, working on decentralized exchange tools. So look at the section where we say, and let's go beyond. Uh, let's yeah. go beyond just publishing, say, a protocol um, for you know swapping two tokens on Ethereum and publishing it to GitHub to an open source software repository. What other things do people do in this space? And do any of them start to actually approach that standard of professional conduct that's outlined by Justice White? And, and so, can I just say that's why I was bringing up earlier? It's that we can't forget that it's it's also the bringing together. Right, like mm -hmm. I think the SEC, what they'll say is no. Clearly, you can publish a book, and clearly you can publish code to GitHub, and that's speech. But this is why we have this other part of our little test, which is bring together people. Right, I, I guess. But but, but here's the thing: like the reason why some of these tools are better and e easier to use, and 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 more intuitive than just code in a GitHub repository is not because you have a personal nexus between Correct. the, the yeah. developer and the user. What you have is graphic design is like a button that looks like a physical button in the real world is a uh, widget that you can embed into any website that allows you to interact with a smart contract on Ethereum. A paragraph written in plain English rather than C++ that explains, you know, things you could do with this tool that I've made and ways to, you know, go through the process of using it uh, so you're not scared. And so all of this, and even operating a website that actually hosts this stuff, not just giving it to GitHub to host, although you're probably paying for that on GitHub, maybe not, I don't know. Actually, I guess you, you, you could do you could you could do it for anyway, free or not. Yeah. You know, even even though if you were directly hosting the website and making advertising revenue off of the website, like like Christopher Lowe made money off of his newsletter. He was publishing it directly. It was a recurring thing. So like it, it's hard to see at what point we actually hit the justice white standard. And that's gonna worry, I think, a lot of people because it may mean that there's a strong constitutional bar to doing the kind of investor protection regulation that a lot of people might want to do in a world where everything is trading using software instead of the New York Stock Exchange. But this is- now, Yeah, we don't, want to we don't want to minimize that because no. I think there are some you know, uh, very legitimate uh, concerns about investor protection, uh, especially from folks who would love to see more and stricter investor protection 
uh, than we currently have. Um, and, you know, by completely disintermediating the parties that would normally be subject to the regulation, um, there's just no longer a uh, opportunity for that kind of regulation. Yep. And we're saying, well, take it up with the First Amendment. Like that's not, you know. Take it up. So if you want to do this on a permissioned basis, you got to take it up with the First Amendment. But maybe there's other basis. There's even, we, yeah. I left some breadcrumbs in here. Like there are anti-touting provisions of the security yeah. so, so I was going to say. There's fraud. <laughs> there's like, if if this person is doing things to say like, hey, come trade some synthetic Tesla stock using my tool, I'll help you or whatever, then maybe you can go after them for something else. But I'm not sure merely by publishing that tool. Well, yeah. I'm, I don't think you can go after them for, for being an exchange. Yeah, and I think, and, and that's kind of what I, uh, maybe I was being too glib, but when I would say, take it up with the First Amendment, what I'm referring to there specifically is the idea that there always has to be an intermediary that is easily regulable. Yeah. Can't help you there. But as you say, that's not, doesn't mean all hope is lost. doesn't mean that we, there's not, um, there are not all manner of things that we can do to protect investors. And in particular, there are any number of things that we can do um, that we've always been able to do before the securities laws uh, yeah. to combat fraud, yeah. right? And so, you know, you can see, you know, um, you can see different um, uh, developers of decentralized exchange protocols make available different products. And on some, you can see all kinds of promises uh, being made. Yeah. And in others, you don't. And, you know, uh, there's that, that's a distinction uh, uh, there. Yeah. Uh, you said that um, this could go all the way to the act. So not just that the, this, you know, so that, and by the way, just again, to remind people of the posture, um, this rule has not changed anything yet. This is a proposal to change it, right? Uh, the SEC will at some point finalize this rule and either they will take everything we've said to heart and amend it so that they, it's not so broad and they will narrow it in such a way that it does not impinge on speech. Or they'll say, we hear you, but we think we're okay and just publish it and finalize it the way it is. And that becomes the new rule. And at that point, uh, somebody, maybe us, maybe probably somebody else, will go and file in federal court and say, look, you can't do this. Um, and at that point, the you know what a plaintiff will say is hey yes hey um, Supreme Court or you know federal court um, this new rule this rule change this amendment to the to the previous interpretation of exchange um, creates a prior restraint on speech which is unconstitutional and so what a court could do <clears throat> if they agree is to say okay you're right and that's stricken and so we kind of revert to the old standard or the SEC has to do new rulemaking or whatever, yeah. but that is not the rule. But you're saying that they could go further and say, not only is the rule unconstitutional, but the Exchange Act is unconstitutional. Well, so, so it's a whole, it's a whole thing, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you can imagine that, you know, a good plaintiff. So, so let's, let's actually, first deal with the procedural issue because there's an interesting thing we mentioned here is that under some more recent first amendment precedent at the court plaintiffs can bring pre-enforcement challenges 
So we don't even need to wait for the, we, we wait for the rule to become final. As Jerry said, the rule is just proposed right now. But, and I'm saying we, not necessarily Coin Center, because they're probably our better challenge. The community. You know, the community. We, we wait till the rule's final, and then we don't have to wait for the SEC to enforce against somebody writing DEX software. We don't have to wait. In most cases, you have to wait because you need standing, you need to prove injury, you need to say like, look, um, you can bring facial challenges. This is called a facial challenge. It's not, a, not an as-applied challenge, but you can bring a facial challenge against a new law, but in most cases, you have to say that there's just nothing legitimate about this law. Like it has, it plainly has no legitimate sweep. Facial means that on its face, it's on its face, it's, it's yeah. unconstitutional. Um, but in the First Amendment context, the bar is actually a lot lower to bring a facial challenge. You don't say that it has no legitimate sweep um, or there's no circumstances where the law as applied would be valid. You simply have to say that a substantial number of the potential applications of the law or the standard are unconstitutional, such that when people see this law, they feel the need to self-censor for fear of being one of those several you know, persons performing an activity that, that is no longer allowed. And then they self-censor, and that's that's a chilling effect on our constitutional protected speech rights. And therefore, we want to allow facial challenges to prevent the chilling effect. And the chilling effect is very real. I mean, you can definitely see why if you were a developer of perhaps highly innovative, very cool technology that may be used to trade securities, but may be used for other things too, and you happen to be located in the US and you were thinking like, well, geez, I want to keep publishing these software libraries. A lot of people use them. And, and like them, and they seem safe and effective. Maybe I'll move to Belgium. I don't know. I don't know if I want to be. And you can now. imagine, and you can imagine, you know, intermediaries like, let's say, GitHub or totally Google saying, you know what, like this is like a minuscule portion of our business. Right. Yeah, we just want nothing to do with this, right? We're just, just going to stop publishing this, republishing this speech for them. Yeah, right. And so, because of the danger of this chilling effect. The, the standard for when you can bring pre-enforcement facial challenges to the law is much lower in this context. So we don't have to wait for enforcement. We don't have to prove that the whole thing is illegitimate. All we have to prove to bring a case invalidating this rule, um, which would take a long time in the courts, but we could start right away. All we'd have to say is that it it burdens a substantial amount of, sweet, uh, of speech and, and would chill constitutionally protected expression, which I think is a pretty easy case to make. And so then the question is, what happens when that challenge goes forward? Does it end up invalidating just this rule? And then they have to go back and they have to either use the old rule definition or create a new rule, or does it invalidate the Exchange Act itself? I think you know any good plaintiff is going to make the argument um, that there isn't statutory authority here, right? Because we were saying, I was saying earlier, that argument's kind of weak. And they can make other interesting arguments along those lines too, that like maybe there's statutory authority, but it's it's impermissible delegation of legislative authority from Congress to the agency. There's lots of arguments you can make there. We don't make that one in, in this comment. Uh, and the, the, the SEC, the government's gonna have to come back and say, no, the statute is clear. It gives us the authority to do all of this. And that's why we're doing it. We're doing what Congress told us to do. We're not stretching it. We're not doing other stuff. At which point then, that's probably right, because the Exchange Act is extremely broad. It doesn't, doesn't have a carve-out for bona fide publications like the Investment Advisors Act. It doesn't have any carve-out at all. It has no, the definition has no mention of this professional nexus. It, it's very broad. And so a court that 
takes the First Amendment challenge very seriously, which I think the Supreme Court would, a lot of circuits in this country would, would be faced with this issue. Well, crap, how do we sever the constitutionally deficient parts of the Exchange Act from the rest of the act? And we're not talking about some like doodad attached to the act. We're talking about the core definition of exchange. So, <laughs> and, you know, at this point, I'm 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 worried that I'm too confident in yeah. the vindication of First Amendment rights because would we really eviscerate a very large part of our investment protection regime in order to defend those so. rights? The Constitution says we would, but is Congress going to go fix that quickly? God, can you imagine if we had to rewrite the Exchange Act in, <laughs> in 2023 or 2024? Rather, um, that would be a nightmare considering the way Congress works these days. Um, yeah, which is why I don't think the court would do that. Um, they'll find some, they'll find some the, 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 the legal term here is severability. Can you sever the deficient parts from the existing structure? Um, maybe, but, but they're not allowed to rewrite the statute. That's the thing. Like you'd think they could just yeah. take justice white's professional conduct statute and put that in our standard and put that into the exchange definition that no judge will do that. Cause judges know they can't just write legislation. Well, this can, court won't do that. Yeah, that's true. Fair. A fish can be evidence uh, for accounting fraud. Yes. <laughs> um, so what else do we need to talk about with this? What were we skipping over? Uh, I think we've got most. The, yeah. the, the so, last bit is just where we say, like, look, we know we just made a cool. long First Amendment argument. We don't want this to happen. The, the SEC has been sensitive to First Amendment issues in the past, and we cite... A really interesting speech that I hadn't found before by Roberta who was the first um, first woman commissioner in the in the 70s. And she said, we we in this speech, she says we changed a rule because we realized that it was potentially, you know, impacting too much protected speech. And that's important. Um, and so there's a there's a precedent here, if you will, of an agency sort of changing direction mid rulemaking um, out of recognition of the First Amendment issues. And of course, one of our current commissioners, Hester Purse, has has. I we need to go back now and see if she actually mentioned First Amendment in her speech. I'm, I'm, I'm like nine, I looked. I'm like ninety nine percent. Okay, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, I, either way, I I think they're you know I I don't know what's going on at the SEC these days, <laughs> but I do hope they read our our comment and they they don't oh, they see will. it as combative. And they, well, I know they'll read it, but. And no, no, no. I recognize I, that well, maybe there is a path forward to do what we wanted to do with the Bloomberg terminal and not, you know, jeopardize the mere publication of software or or permission there. Yeah, I mean, so if I had to bet, and I really hope that I'm, you know, please SEC prove me wrong. Um, but if I had to bet on how this will proceed now, um, I think the SEC will certainly read our comment and all the other comments that were filed seriously. And we'll take them very seriously. And they will even address our comment in the ultimate, you know, in, in the final uh, publication of the rule. Um, but if I had to bet, I think what they will say um, is that they disagree with the analysis. Yeah. And, and I think they'll say that um, it's interesting. I, I don't know what they're going to say actually about the. So it's, it's very interesting, right? So. Um, Given the economic analysis that they did, where they said that only 22 parties would be would suffer a uh, a burden, um, 
what they're implicitly saying there is that DeFi decentralized exchange will not be affected yeah. by this. So one thing they could do is to say that, is to say, much like the Treasury Department has said that under the tax provisions of the infrastructure bill um, won't affect miners and node operators. Right. Of course, if you read the text of the statute, it could on a dime be applied to them. But they've said, oh, we have no intention of using this language that way. Um, so, you know, so they could just kind of reiterate who they who they want to. Um, so, yeah. Um, I just I, now, I, now they may not do that though because they also don't want to tie their hands because once you do use it in the future, then in addition to all the claims that you mentioned would be in a lawsuit, you could add APA yeah. um, uh, to to the list, uh, uh, Administrative Procedure Act um, violation to the list. Um, so that's going to be interesting to see how they, how they square that. Um, but they could also, but, you know, but if they do want to concede that they do intend to potentially cover DEX, I think they would say things like, and we've heard this when we've talked to our friends at Treasury, for example, where they're like, well, this is a place. This is, this is a, you're providing a service and, and you do have a privity with, you know, they're coming into your home and you're providing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so they're going to have that conception, I think. Um, but that's just my, yeah, rank speculation. There's another aspect of this that um, I mean, it's funny. One of our favorite Twitter accounts was asking about like whether Congress considered indexing um, the BSA thresholds for inflation. And I said, I said, look, I, I actually didn't look into the legislative history because the judges today tend, the, especially the ones that we think would, would probably be allied up with us on on things like speech issues tend not to care about legislative history, you know, right. it's the word of the statute that matters. I would be really interested though, in, in both looking at that, like what were the discussions about when a report is triggered, the size of the transaction, the amount of private data included, things like that, to the extent there were discussions about that in the seventies with respect to anti-money laundering policy. Also be very interested in learning more about the legislative intent behind the exchange act, because it's, tumultuous period of American mm -hmm. history right after the Great Depression or in the midst of the Great Depression, right after the, uh, you know, like bonanza of everyone getting involved in the stock market and it not turning out so well for a lot of people. And probably like, it is my guess, and this is interesting then, that the early stock exchanges mm -hmm. were kind of like, hey, if you want to trade Apple stock, meet me in the park at 8 p.m. Like Lloyd's of London was a coffee house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, and, and this goes to the question of, like, whether the act itself might be unconstitutional, because I think the act might have been really deliberately written to just say, like, if you're a group of people that regularly trade stocks with each other and have come up with rules amongst yourselves for how to do that, that's an exchange. You yeah, gotta... but I, not to, so you're right about the, but I think that was a, I think by the time the Exchange Act came around and we're, exhibiting our ignorance here of history but i think by the time the exchange act came around oh it had been professionalized totally absolutely. professionalized absolutely but i think it had, even if it had been professionalized there were probably more and less professional examples yeah. right and you know that the ones that they tried to get rid of were the less professionalized ones that's interesting yeah well the good news is that 
uh, unlike probably the BSA, there is no doubt a lot of um, uh, history that you can easily dig up no, on this, right? I mean, I'm sure there's been a lot of scholarship done yeah. uh, on that. Anyhow, well, so that's it. So we filed our our thing, and now we wait. Um, uh, and uh, and yeah, and we'll see. But um, it's really interesting uh, seeing a lot of the challenges that our European friends um, are having these days. You know what a blessing it is for us here in the U.S. to have the First Amendment um, right there. Yeah, it's hard. Like I can't imagine making arguments against Mika. Which yeah. is proposal for regulating, um, you know, from an investment protection standpoint, a lot of potential software development in Europe. I can't imagine making you make the best arguments you can given the statutory and constitutional authorities you have, but it's it's hard to make an argument that defends people's right to publish software on purely economic grounds. And this is something that I think a lot of folks that we talk to struggle with because they're like, show me the actual like very real good that this technology is doing in the world. And we have good anecdotes. God knows we have lots of good anecdotes and the plural of anecdotes is data. But, you know, it's if you do a cost benefit analysis, you're just making so many assumptions. Yeah. And you're, the biggest assumption is like, what will this technology be doing in 10 years? And nobody knows the answer to that. And that's why we have a First Amendment. Correct. It's like the marketplace for ideas is going to go, and that's the best way to have progress in science and arts and culture and the humanities. And if we presuppose that everything that's going to be written in the next five years is freaking lousy, then and we ban it because of that, then like we're not going to know that progress. And so, like, it's hard without a First Amendment. With it's it's hard to have a, a consequentialist approach, uh, right. moral approach to to speech rights. Um, yeah. You really have to be sort of deontological. You have to be like, no, this is just something about human dignity that we don't we don't mess with. Yeah, I, I like to lean more on the liberal part of liberal democracy. Uh, Classically liberal? Well, yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> liberal democracy. Anyhow, uh, this was a delight, Peter. Um, I hope people enjoyed nerding out. Yeah, I hope the SEC enjoys nerding out. <laughs> All right. See you next time. Bye, Jerry.